Father, as we come this morning, we come giving you our praises. We come knowing that you are the one who has given us life and new life. We come knowing that in you we can believe, we can trust, we can we can place our faith in your promises to us and your graciousness towards us in your plan to redeem and save and renew all things. We pray, Father, that this morning you would send your spirit, that he would lift our eyes to your son, that as we focus on him, as we follow him, that we would be brought more and more into your life, into your love, into your joy, and into your peace. We pray that your spirit would send us out on mission as Christ would have us, and that we would be able to obediently and courageously live out that mission. It's in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Spirit that we prayed this morning. Amen. Well, if you're like me, you've got a problem with Mondays. If you don't have a problem with Mondays, don't tell me, okay? I don't want to talk to you about it. Mondays come every week is the problem. Every single week. I don't know if any of you have a Monday face. I have a Monday face. I have a Monday attitude. And I actually learned this week while I was studying that we are not the first people in the past few hundred years to have Monday problems. In fact, this is a very ancient, ancient complaint. The fact that the week goes on, and then there's another week, and then there's another week, and then there's another week. And every Monday in the ancient world, I guess you got up and went and farmed or whatever you did back then. And so there's actually this very ancient Jewish tradition, this legend, that one day weeks will end, that the cycle of a week will end, that after a Sabbath day, one day, there won't be the next day. There'll be, in a sense, an eighth day of the week. And according to the Jewish people, this eighth day would be when God's kingdom arrived. It would be when God's glory filled the earth like the water fills the sea. It would be when God's shalom or peace reigned over all things in creation. In fact, Christians believe Jesus solved the problem of Monday. Christians believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of this ancient Jewish longing for the week to finally end, for there finally to be something more than just one more Monday. We've been studying the Apostles' Creed and we've been going through it, looking at some of the things that we believe as Christians, some of our more foundational truths as believers, just like we just sang. We believe in God the Father. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We'll sing it again after the sermon, and so we want to learn this song and sing it with some um, enthusiasm as we express our belief in all that God is and has done for us. And this morning we come to the part in the creed that is the center of the creed and is the center of Christianity, namely Jesus' resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. You just have a sad group of people who had followed Jesus, who would have to move on with their lives. You and I would not be here on a Sunday morning. There would not be lots of nonprofits and Christian churches and bumper stickers and all kinds of cool stuff if it was not all for the fact that Christians claim that after Jesus died, he resurrected. The creed 
frames it like this. It reads, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And now we pick up this week. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Catholic, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Notice in the creed that we get our only present tense verb. We get lots of past tense verbs about what Jesus has done. He was conceived, was born, he suffered, was crucified, died, was buried, descended, rose, ascended, and then we get a present tense. He sits. The the early church, when they wrote this creed, wrote it thinking that as long as Christians stand up to say this, this phrase will be true of the present. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to John chapter 20. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. This is the resurrection story according to John. Um, If you've been here for a while, you've heard me preach out of this passage. Uh, I just love it for so many different reasons. And I want to show you how the resurrection is, like I said, the, the problem, the solution to the problem of Mondays. The resurrection is the, the first day of a new world, according to, to Christians. And you see this illustrated as well as these truths about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, um, both in this passage here in John chapter 20. So if you would read with me, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, and that's important. Remember that phrase, on the first day of the week. John doesn't flippantly put that into his story. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. John's talking about himself there as one does um, when they refer to themselves and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, you know, the one that Jesus really loved, And they were going together toward the tomb. Both of them are running together, but the other disciple, you know, the one writing this book, outran Peter and reached the tomb like really, really, really first. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him like a really, really long time after the first disciple got there. He's on his knees. He's breathing heavy. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Um... Simon Peter came, followed him, went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, the one that Jesus loves, you'll remember him, he reached the tomb first. Peter really wants you to get this point. Also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. 
having said that she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, don't cling to me yet, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Here we have the resurrection and the promise of the ascension to the Father. Now, when Mary is crying for the absence of Jesus, Mary Magdalene is one of Jesus' most devoted followers during his lifetime. Very upset when Jesus dies. And you have this beautiful, poignant scene here in John chapter 20, where Jesus shows up and she doesn't recognize him. And she continues in her grief. And it's not until Jesus whispers her name that it clicks. And all at once she realizes that her Lord is alive again. And I think perhaps in that, that, that small story, we get a microcosm, we get a picture of what happens to all of us when we first enter into our relationship with Jesus. We're weeping. We're searching for something. We might not even know what we're searching for. And then we hear an invitation. And all of a sudden we realize, we recognize. Like a friend who maybe changes appearance and, and we don't quite know who it is until we hear the voice come out. Until we're named and invited in. And then it clicks. And Mary rejoices. Goes to tell the other disciples Jesus resurrects from the dead. This is what the creed says. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection is the center of Christianity. And there's lots of meanings to the resurrection. Now, when the early Christians say that Jesus resurrected, they, they meant some things and they didn't mean other things. They didn't mean that Jesus was resuscitated. And by that, they didn't mean Jesus got really sick really beat up and kind of got like blacked out and then just came to. And they also didn't mean that Jesus came back to life in his former life. He didn't return to continue what he had left, like other people have who had been resurrected. So Lazarus, for instance, right? Jesus resurrects Lazarus. But Lazarus is not here today to tell us about that cool time when Jesus resurrected him. Why? Because Lazarus was resurrected back into his former life where death still has a say, where death still has a hold. Lazarus died. Christians, though, claim that Jesus resurrected into a new life, an eternal life. In this sense, he didn't just come back from the dead. He went through death. He defeated death. The resurrection is not just God's affirmation that Jesus is God's son. It is that. The scriptures say this is vindication. The Romans crucified Jesus saying, you're a pretend king. And God says, no, I will reverse that verdict. This is the true king. But it's not just an affirmation of Jesus's identity. And it's not just a sign of God's power, a miracle that we can look to, to trust God's power and authority. The resurrection is the gospel the good news, 
The resurrection in a phrase is the victory of God over evil through the person and work of Jesus. We talked last week about this phrase in the creed, he descended into hell. It's this controversial phrase, and and however you want to, to say it or formulate it or think about it, the theology behind it is pretty sound. The idea is that what happens when Jesus dies is not just a human being dying. It's a primal, eternal struggle, a fight, a war between life and death, between love and evil. And with the resurrection, life wins, love wins, God wins. It's as if, going back to the hell analogy, right, where Jesus goes into hell and then breaks out of it with the resurrection. It's as if Jesus is this ticking time bomb, and they bring him into the very center of death. And then, like 24, three days later, it explodes. And Jesus rises out of the tomb, and death has now changed. It's now defeated. It has now been conquered. It's now been beaten. And Jesus is now no longer subject to its way. In this way, the resurrection is the heart of what it means when we say that God has saved us. He has beaten our sin. He has beaten death. He has beaten evil and Satan. He has freed us. As a human being, he has made a way for us through death. He's blazed a trail that we'll get to follow. This is what the resurrection means to the early Christians. Now, something happened around the Middle Ages when Christians started to become what I call more cross people than resurrection people. Christians as a whole started to emphasize the cross and the crucifixion as the primary place where salvation took place, our sins being forgiven, as the primary place where we see God's love for us. He loved us so much that he died for us. And unfortunately, because of that, over time and in certain places, emphasis on other big key truths of salvation were lost. And this, I think, is still true to this day. I've talked about this before here at the church, how we want to be resurrection people, not just cross people. So Easter's coming up. And if you were to be at another church on Easter, you won't because you'll be here with me, which is great. But if you were to be at another church, you might find that just here in Sugarland, a lot of churches will spend Easter Sunday talking about the crucifixion. Now, don't get me wrong. I've got nothing wrong with the crucifixion. I like it. I love what happens in the crucifixion. Not in Jesus' death, but in, in what God is accomplishing through his death. But I'm not going to spend Resurrection Sunday talking about that. We'll talk about that on Good Friday. And if you were to go to other churches, even here in Sugarland, on Christmas or Christmas Eve, you would find that they'd spend the majority of the service talking about the crucifixion. Again, don't get me wrong, I love being a cross person. So I actually like got it permanently put on my arm. I thought it was temporary. I didn't read the fine print. If you go to these places called tattoo shops or parlors, I suggest you do read the fine print. This doesn't wash off. I've got nothing wrong with the cross, but I do have something wrong with 
ignoring other beautiful parts of salvation and only focusing on the cross. And there are actually reasons why we do this, nefarious reasons, even if it's not intentional on our part, why we focus on the cross and not on the resurrection. Because everyone would rather have a dead Lord than a living Lord. It's very easy to co-opt the message of a dead person. Martin Luther King Jr. is an excellent example of this. I don't know how much you know about MLK or what he stood for or what he preached about. Most of us know him as a civil rights leader. Here's what I can tell you as a a, a, um, scholar of history. Martin Luther King Jr. in the past year has been used as an argument, as as an icon for far-left progressive liberals to stand for all that they believe in civil, civil liberties and freedom and has also been used for far, far right-leaning Republicans and for what they want to stand for. When it comes to the question of should transgender people be able to pick what bathroom they use, I've seen Martin Luther King Jr. say yes, and I've also seen Martin Luther King Jr. say no which is confusing to me. Seems like he should make up his mind. But he's not around to clear up the record. This is actually a a phenomenon that happens a lot to historical figures. They get co-opted by groups. Think about presidents, right? Um, Think about the Republican Party, for instance. That's the party I kind of grew up in that I'm most used to, holds fast to... Ronald Reagan. And if, if anyone ever takes Reagan's legacy and uses it against something that I believe or something that a conservative believes, it's kind of disorienting, right? No, that's our guy. You can't take him. But Reagan's not here to stand up for himself. His message can easily be co-opted, co-opted if, if he's not there to, to say something about it. This is, I think, unfortunately what happens with Jesus. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., um, what, what, what happens is, is once someone's dead and their message needs to be co-opted, you selectively remember things they stood for and things they said. Um, Martin, Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. was investigated by the government for being a socialist because he said a lot of socialist things. There was something nefarious to the investigation. They wanted him to shut up about equal rights, and so they were trying to get dirt on him. But if you actually go back and read the full corpus of his, his, his literary and, 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 and spoken words, you'll see that he was pretty close to what you might call a socialist and how he understood economics. You might also see that he was, he was kind of that way because he quoted the Bible over and over and over again, which I know will upset my Reagan friends. But the Old Testament The Old Testament is a very, very, very kind of liberal economic system. How how liberal, you might say? Interest is illegal. Not just illegal, evil. And not just high interest rates. Interest itself, the concept of it, of using someone else's need for your profit, is itself inherently one of the signs of what's gone wrong with the world and God's people should not be involved with it. There are no ifs, ands, or buts in the Old Testament. Now, there's a problem here. Our entire economy is built on interest. 
So I'm going to say, you've probably not heard a lot of sermons about those passages. If you have, you've probably heard a really good, like, Kellyanne Conway type spin, okay? Here's why this doesn't really mean what it says and why it really doesn't apply to us right now. Now, again, I'm not saying perhaps we should get rid of interest. I happen to be on the wrong side of interest right now. (laughs) So I'm not a fan. Maybe I'll get on the right side, hopefully one day in my life. Martin Luther King Jr., though, had these, these principles. Where we focus on one thing he said or, or twist it in one way or another. The same thing can happen with Jesus. You've seen this surely, right? Again, for the same issue in particular, transgender people and restroom choices. Jesus has been very clearly marketed on one side, also very clearly marketed on the other. And you're like, it's very disorienting. It's very confusing. A living person, though, is able to step in and give an opinion, is able to clear the record. A living person might have more expectations of people if they claim to be associated with that person than someone who's dead. It's much nicer to go to a memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. and be inspired by his legacy and then twist that legacy into whatever you want it to be, which is why Church services are not a memorial service. We don't come and remember someone who died who was inspiring to us. No, Christians come and we claim to hear from one who is alive. Which is why technically, I'm not the pastor of this church. The very technical term would be under-shepherd. I'm in a sense a spokesperson for Jesus. Which brings us to this another idea, ascension. Christians believe Jesus ascended into heaven, sits at God's right hand. That's the sign of power and authority. What the ascension does not mean is that Jesus is distant from the world or no longer involved in the world. The ascension means, if anything, that Jesus is as active and powerful as he was during his ministry. Here's, here's the best analogy for understanding the ascension. Um, think about the president of the United States. They go through a long campaign. One wins. They get inaugurated. And then they go sit down in the Oval Office. And they start signing executive orders and talking to legislators and enacting their agenda. This is what Christians mean when we talk about language like the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection is the election results. The news came in. God won. The ascension, sitting at the Father's right hand, is the inauguration. And what happens after the inauguration is not rest. It's not disassociation. It's the enactment of an agenda. The same agenda, I might add, that he was already going after before he was crucified, before he was resurrected, during his ministry there in Galilee. I've always been fascinated with the question of what the president is doing right now. And not just after Donald Trump got inaugurated. I mean, even, even back when, like the most powerful man in the world probably, what, what, I mean, what are they doing right now? Maybe tweeting? Maybe talking to an, a, a really important person? Maybe going to the bathroom, which seems weird to say they shouldn't have to do that. They're the president. But what, what happens with the president, and I find myself doing this even, 
and I'm not really a political person, is the whole world looks to that office on the edge of their, their seats, waiting to see what will come out. Looking for one word. Looking for one signal of what will happen. Of a policy. Of an agenda. This is why the Twitter thing is such a kind of fascinating phenomenon. No matter what you think about Donald Trump, um, Twitter is a new form of communication for the president's use. And we're still learning quite how to interpret it. But we all have to pay attention to it. Why? Because even that tweet is policy, is agenda. There was this interesting uh, thing that happened recently where, where President Trump accused former President Obama of doing something that would have been a very classified act in the government, one of the most top secret things that exist. And there's a large conversation about the president actually is the only person in the government in the United States who can have full authority to unclassify anything. So Trump could come out right now and tell us about Roswell. And he should, if he's listening. But by that very tweet, if it was true what happened, Trump just declassified one of the most top secret things that would have ever happened in the American government. I say all of this to say this is how we should view Jesus' resurrection and ascension. As his people... We look to the office on the edge of our seats, waiting to hear what the plan is. What's the policy? What's the agenda? What's coming up next? You know, I was, I was thinking about this, and, and yesterday I was, I was reading um, some news around the world, and, and, and I've read at, I've, I've been reading about this. I've read, though, the UN's come out with a very strong statement. Um, Somalia, Yemen, Kenya, where I have some very dear friends, South Sudan, um, the UN saying they're in one of the largest crises since the UN's been formed. In fact, I think it was something like, if not three or four billion dollars gets delivered in the next week or so, we might see death tolls like we've never seen. Something like, in one of these countries, 50% of the people are in danger of dying from starvation, like soon. So it was like this plea to help. So I'm thinking, right, what is on Jesus' agenda? Yesterday, Saturday, March 11th, What's on Jesus' agenda? And I'm thinking it probably includes Somalia and Yemen and South Sudan and Kenya. And it probably includes rallying his people through his spirit that he's poured out into them to care and to pray and to send resources and to go and to be a light, to bring love and provision and safety and hope. And it's not just big things that are on Jesus' agenda. Sometimes, right, if, if we focus maybe too much on these huge humanitarian crises, it feels kind of paralyzing. We kind of get numb to it. But, but there are other things on Jesus' agenda, like that relationship that you have with that person you just can't seem to love. On Jesus' agenda today is for the Spirit to convict you and for you to offer forgiveness to that person who you haven't been able to yet offer forgiveness to. Today on Jesus' agenda, as the Lord, the living one, is for you to love that enemy who you've yet been unable to love. Today on Jesus' agenda is for the Spirit to work in the hearts 
of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people in their homes this morning who have been burnt by the church, who have been hurt by the church, who have fallen out of love with the church to soften up their hearts for you and I to come invite them into a community, for you and I to be on mission as Easter approaches as we have the most right time of the year to invite people into the life God provides in a growing and thriving and living church community. That's on God's agenda. That's on Jesus' agenda is to have the spirit work in our hearts to create this desire to go out and find them and reach them and bring them in. Jesus is alive and he's as alive as he ever was alive. This is what it means to say he is risen. Jesus has resurrected and ascended. And I don't know if you're like me, but I, when I grew up, and when I grew up in church, I grew up with this kind of tacit assumption that we didn't really think of Jesus in terms of him being alive. We maybe use that phrase once or now, you know, around Easter. For the most part, we thought of him as someone of ancient history. But as I've grown in my knowledge and, and relationship, I find that when I say that and when I emphasize it, like this, Jesus is as alive right now in this moment as he's ever been alive as a human being. I find that I kind of get tingly. I kind of get some goosebumps. To be honest, I kind of get a little nervous. Because I... I think you might have some expectations for me. I get a little excited because it makes my faith feel a little more real, have a little bit more substance. You know, when Jesus ascended, it's important to realize that he ascended as a human being. The incarnation did not end when Jesus resurrected or ascended. The incarnation being God taking the form of a human being. Jesus, when he ascends, doesn't shake off humanity like a, a, a snake uh, sheds its skin, right? Now, this, this breaks apart our theology at the core. And so I'm about to say something to you that might sound weird to you. But just to back myself up, I went through and found, in, a, in about an hour I looked through some books, found 17 well-respected theologians who said this exact same sentence, including St. Augustine, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Karl Barth, people like that. If you know um, some Christian, some names like that, you know, those are big hitters have said things of this nature. What the ascension means is that now a human being is a part of the Trinity. Yeah, I don't know how to make sense of that. <laughs> it kind of, this is that, that time bomb going right into the middle of what we think we know about God and exploding it. This is why when, when the Bible says to look into heaven where Christ is, where our hope is laid, it's because a human being has gone to where we want to go. He's blazed the trail for us. He's there at the right hand of the Father. And he is, according to his own words, making room for us, his brothers and sisters. Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. He's active. He's at work. He's powerful. When we come to worship services, we're not coming to memorial services. In a sense, I'm the White House press secretary. Do my very best 
to communicate to you what the boss's desires are. But he can speak for himself. And then he has a much more effective communication strategy than our government does. Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, convicting us personally, opening up the scriptures to us. But this is what we mean when, when Christians stand and we say we believe that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ has come again. That the man we follow, the man who taught the Sermon on the Mount, who told us to love our enemies, who told us to forgive as we've been forgiven, who told us to love indiscriminately, who taught us how to pray, that man is alive right now. That man is saying your name right now. The Spirit is trying to get you to recognize it and turn and go, that's what I've been seeking. This is the mission that I've been longing for. This is the vocation that the shape of my life fits into, going and sharing the news. The one incorrect thing about saying that Jesus' ministry continues the same way as it does before he's crucified is this. It misses the fact that something powerful has changed with the death and resurrection of Jesus. A victory has been won. Death has been broken, beaten. Evil, Satan, sin have been destroyed. And so the ministry after the death and resurrection of Jesus is very much similar, bringing life, healing, hope, forgiveness. But it does so on the backs of a broken enemy. It's, it's much like in a war where the war might be won, but there still might be people firing guns or a disease that might be cured, but there still might be some people out there that need the medicine. This is the shape of the church's mission. As we go out into the world, bringing Jesus' message and life to people without him. We don't go in this same struggle between death and life. We go after death itself has been broken and beaten a wounded enemy waiting out the clock until it's finally destroyed when Jesus returns. Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I believe. Do you? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. We thank you for the reminders that we have of your great victory accomplished in your son and his death and in his resurrection. We pray that you would allow us to be not only cross people, but resurrection people. Not only people who appreciate the forgiveness that we've received on the cross, but also embrace the freedom and victory we've been given through the resurrection. We pray that